Hi, I'm Matt Williams. Welcome to Glimpses, where we talk about life, love, creativity, and all that spiritual stuff. My guest today is a remarkably talented writer and perhaps one of the funniest people in America. By the way, there's no pressure to be no, funny. No, no pressure at all. No, no, no pressure no, no, no. to be funny. This man has won so many awards that I couldn't count them, so I, I got lazy and I did a cut and paste from his Wikipedia page, okay? Ah. So, Wikipedia? Okay. Yeah, Wikipedia. But I kind of edit it because it goes on and on and on. Okay. Alan Zweibel is an American television writer, author, playwright, and screenwriter whom the New York Times says has earned a place in the pantheon of American pop culture. You're in the pantheon. You know something? I don't know where this Pantheon is, but if I ever come across it, I'm going to look for myself. <laughs> well, I was thinking maybe you have to buy a toga. If you do. Oh, I got plenty of okay, that. You you know, toga. No, no, you I'm got, all set. Okay, you got togas. He is an original Saturday Night Live writer. Bell has won five Emmy Awards and two Writers Guild of America Awards for his work in television, which includes It's Gary Shandling's Show and Curb Your Enthusiasm and... He was awarded the Thurber Prize for American Humor, and he has won a Tony Award for the Broadway production of 700 Sundays with Billy Crystal. He has written 11 books, as well as numerous plays and feature films, and it is my very great pleasure to welcome Alan Zweibel to Glimpses. I'm really thrilled. I haven't seen you in many years. So no, this is no, a no. Treat. But you look great. I mean, I'd recognize you just about anywhere. <laughs> okay. I'm going to start with this. When did you know you were funny? Uh, I guess high school. We moved from one school to another. I moved from one school to another right. um, in tenth grade, which is sort of tough to do. And um, everybody knew each other since kindergarten. And all of a sudden, I was saying things, and people were laughing, and it, it helped me make friends. I'm going, well, this is fun, you know, and then... So you were around 13, 14 years yeah, old? Yeah, something like, like that, where all of a sudden, um, these, you know, look, making your your siblings or your parents laugh, you know, that that's easy. They, they know you and supposedly right. love you, but when you make strangers, new people laugh, you go, hey, uh, this is okay, I'll follow this, you know, and then I remember... Watching, um, oh God, I must have been about 14 when the, the Dick Van Dyke show of came course, on the air. Of course. Okay, everyone our age says that was the show. And yeah. I remember sitting with my parents watching the Dick Van Dyke show. This good looking guy wrote for TV, had a very nice house in New Rochelle, married to Mary Tyler Moore, had a son, Richie, so he had a family. And at work every day, he lied on a couch and he was joking around with Buddy and Sally. And I said, I want to do that. Okay. <laughs> now, how do you get to do that? And you, you got to do it. Got to do it. I got to do it. And it was um, every dream I ever had came, you know, as, as the years went by, when I was in college, I started sending in jokes to uh, Carson was the, uh, uh, the host of the Tonight right. Show. Dick Cavett had a show. I started sending things to Mad Magazine. 
And um, I still have a book of all the rejections. It's about an inch thick with all these sheets of papers. Uh, some of them uh, were form letters, but some of them were actually personal letters, uh, which were encouraging. They were encouraging in their rejections. But see, you write jokes. And I tell people, I can't write a joke to save my life. I can think funny. And if the character's funny, the writing's funny. But you write jokes. And we're going to talk talk sure. more about that. But that's how you started, writing jokes, right? Um, yes, I did. When I got out of college, um, about 34, 35, law school said, no, 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 you don't, you don't <laughs> want to be a lawyer. They all got together, these guys. They looked at my board scores and said, this is a waste of everybody's time. <laughs> so I started writing jokes for uh, comics who played in the Catskill Mountains. Uh, this is, uh, well, I graduated college in 72. So 72, 73. Right. $7 a joke. That was the going rate at the time. Now, prior to my arrival there, that was a viable way to get into television writing because you wrote for comics. Right. And if those comics became hot and were offered a TV show, they would take their writers with Got them. It. Okay. So the Toady Fields of the world and uh, Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis, Red Buttons, and as they became popular and they made the move. By the time I got there, anybody who was going to make it had already left. So I was left with every Freddie, Morty, Dickie, <laughs> and Lee that ever lived. $7 a joke they paid me. They treated me really well. And it was really a kick because when growing up on Long Island, that's where we used to go on holiday with, with the family. The four kids and my right. parents, we'd get into the station wagon and go to the Neville, the Concord, Grossingers. And I was too young to go to the nightclubs, but I would sneak in, stand in the back and watch the comics. And now I was writing for them. So it was wow. a kick, you know. That is great. Now, so I tell my students at Columbia, you can't teach someone how to be funny. So when you conceive of a joke... Uh, one of my questions was, do, do you envision a gag? Do you hear the joke? Is it a rhythm? Is it an impulse? What is the birth of a joke in Alan Zweibel's brain? It, it can work a number of ways. And like anything else, something can hit. And you're absolutely like, when you have a character, well, you write for the character. And the joke itself is not necessarily funny, but there's attitude, right. there's personality. It, it, it wasn't until I started writing for, let's say, Rodney Dangerfield that I was writing for a character. You know, it was always easy when he said, I don't get no respect. It was easy for me to say, uh, even as an infant, my mother wouldn't breastfeed me. She said she liked me as a friend, okay? <laughs> that, that was character, right? But until then, the jokes had to stand on their own because those comics up there didn't have distinct personalities. Right. They all wore tuxedos, they probably shared the same false teeth, okay? <laughs> but, but the joke, but they were all interchangeable. I remember, oh, so the first, uh, there was a comic up there named Morty Gunty, okay? Okay. Uh, yeah, he's not exactly a household name. And he called up, and he and I'm 21, he's like 44. So it's like rain for my parents' generation. But he said to me, um, sperm banks. <laughs> I go, what about him? <laughs> he said, uh, can you give me some sperm bank jokes? So uh, the first joke, I got $7. This is what um, made me a professional comedy writer. I wrote a joke for him. I said they have a, a new thing now called sperm banks, which is just like an ordinary bank, except here, after you make a deposit, 
you lose interest, okay? $7 a joke, $7. So that made me a professional. So then about a week or so later, I got a phone call from another uh, Catskill comic named Freddie Roman. And he said to me, hey, I heard you write the great sperm bank joke. So I'm going, how did I become this guy? Why, why, why am I that guy now? So can you give me any? So for him, what did I do? Uh, they were starting to freeze sperm. I said, you know, that could be a problem in the future because it's hard enough telling a kid he's been adopted. How do you tell him he's been defrosted? Okay, so now we're up to $14, okay? It wasn't, it, was when, it wasn't like I just like, you know, dashed right out of the blocks, you know, just stumbling along like that. But it was, it was in answer to your question, those were easy because, okay, banks, sperm, and either, but the, jo the joke that got me the job ultimately on SNL, uh, I had um, a, a binder that had 1,100 jokes in it that I had written for those guys. 1,100 Literally jokes. 1,100 jokes. <clears throat> and um, I, I, Lorne Michaels, what I had done was I got tired of writing for those Catskill guys after a couple of years of working in a delicatessen to supplement this great living that I was making <laughs> as, a, as a comedy writer. And I said, no, the Catskills are dead. These people are twice my age. So there were two clubs in New York at the time. There was um, Catch a Rising Star and, right. the, and the Improv, okay? Of course. So that's where Richard Lewis, my friend Larry David, Elaine Boozler, they, they were Robert Klein. So I went there, and the plan was to take all the jokes those old guys wouldn't buy from me because they said it was too hip for the room. I'm hip. All of a sudden, I'm hip. Okay, <laughs> so, uh, and I went on stage, and I told my jokes with the hopes that um, a manager or an agent would come, like the writing, and want to represent me to become a TV writer. Right. And the first week that I'm there, I meet another guy just starting out. His name is Billy Crystal. He lived about four towns over from where my parents, where I moved back home. Right. He, uh, so he would pick me up every night. We would uh, drive in in his little blue Volkswagen into the city, <laughs> and we'd go on stage tell our jokes, and on the way home, we would listen to the cassettes of our respective sets, and we would say, you know, that joke worked. What if you told this this way, you know? And, and, really? and, and we would give each other notes, and I'm about four months into this experiment, and I'm uh, on stage, it's like one o'clock in the morning, and I'm having the hardest time in the world making these uh, six drunks from Des Moines laugh, okay? <laughs> I get off the stage, <laughs> And I'm sitting at the bar holding my hand. I'm waiting for Billy to give me a ride home. And um, a guy comes up and he looks at me and he just starts shaking his head. And I go, what? He said, you know, you're the, you're the worst comedian I've ever seen in my life. I said, well, I, that's great to hear that because it's really helping me at this time with my head in my hand. You know? And he said, uh, but, uh, you know, the writing isn't bad. He said, you write it. And I said, yeah. He said, could I see more? It was Lorne Michaels. Incredible. And he was, uh, so maybe April of 75, and he's going to all the clubs looking for writers for this new show that would start in October. I went home, sat down at my mom and dad's kitchen table, typed up those 1,100 jokes, went into the city a couple of days later for my uh, interview with Lauren, and he opened the binder, and he read the first joke. And this is a long-winded way of telling you that because any time anybody asks him about me, this joke 
I had written a joke saying that this is how long ago it was from the reference points. The post office is about to issue a stamp commemorating prostitution in the United States. Ten cent stamp. If you want to lick it, it's a quarter. Okay. So that was <laughs> that was the joke. And um that joke took me about two weeks to write. Did it really? Whereas the sperm bank jokes, they were easy. The thing for Rodney was you because you just say, like me as a friend. That right. was easy. Um, as a matter of fact, in my most recent book called Laugh Lines, My Life Helping Funny People Be Funnier, I talk about the process of writing that joke. It was 1975, so the next year was the bicentennial. Right. And the post office did announce that it was going to come out with commemorative stamps celebrating the 200th anniversary of the country. So it was wars, it was Betsy Ross, it was all these historical people and events so the process was, okay, what would be a funny thing to do? So I came up with prostitution. It is so triple X rated until I came up with, you want to lick it, it's a quarter. I had this stamp moaning. <laughs> I had this stamp growing legs and spreading. It was disgusting what I had. And finally, if you want to lick it, it's a quarter. But it did take a long time and a lot of iterations to set it up. Okay, what is a pun? Of the punchline to this, and that became that, and uh, it was on the very first Saturday Night Live ever. Chevy did it in Weekend Update, so that's what uh, made me a TV writer. Was that joke? But here's what I want people to hear: It took you two weeks to write, refine, hone that joke. Right. I think people think Alan's funny, Billy Crystal's funny. They just sit down and knock out jokes. They don't realize the work that goes into crafting a joke, right? Well, the word craft is is, is the accurate word right. because it's the operative word here because, once again, some things are just knee-jerk funny. It strikes you as something and you jot it down. Yeah, you might play with the wording a little bit, but the essence is there. In this particular case, with this particular joke, um, yes, it, I, it, it, there was a delicacy to it because I didn't want it to be vile. Right. I didn't want it to, be, but I wanted it to be, um, well, it was there. Stamp. What do you do with a stamp? We told that joke on SNL. You know, Chevy was in the first weekend update ever, and it was the thing that um, made me a professional television writer. It was the first thing I ever wrote that was on TV. Um, That's what's frightening about social media, something that you wrote in 75, they can pop up on their phone in like three that. seconds. It, it, it's unbelievable that there's nothing that's not documented one way or another. We used to go out of our way to leave a paper trail. You know what I mean? Because we felt it was good in terms of uh, our progeny and uh, just, you know, uh, how, you know, because I'm always fascinated by um, how we got to this place. Right. You know, I, I look at Second City and if you had a genealogical chart and you had Mike Nichols and Elaine May and all those people and what they did, and, 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 and it's fascinating. And you can do the same thing with SNL. It's 50 years, or just about 50 years, right. for God's sake. But the word crafting, I didn't want it to be pornographic, although it could have been. Uh, but at the same time, I knew that there had to be, the setup was so, uh, well, I won't say strong, but at the same time, it, it, it left you expecting something and it had to meet the setup, okay? So um, that took quite a while, whereas other things just come to mind and you write it down. You know, 
I, I admire joke writers, where you write 12 words, 15 words, and by, you start, and by the time you get to the end, your audience is laughing. It, it's an incredible craft. I used to watch like Carson do his monologue or any of those, those guys is when I was growing up, and it wasn't out of character. Yeah, he had a bit of a character because he was a personality, but whereas Bob Hope never made me laugh. Yeah. And, and he was supposed to be America's comic and, and, and our ambassador all over the world. Right. And I never got it, you know. But um, Well, let's talk. I want to yeah. ask you something about Please. Saturday Night Live. <clears throat> because you're talking about writing for character or a persona. Was it easier once you had an ensemble that you were writing for? If you had Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd and Gilda and people like that, did that make it easier? It made it <clears throat> incredibly easier. It was um, before we started rolling here, we were talking about the synergy of either a writer's room or a creative atmosphere. Right. So th those, you know, Gilda, I wrote a lot for, I wrote the Samurais for, for John Belushi, all, a lot of characters. These were characters that John Belushi, um, he auditioned for the show doing the Samurai character. Oh, really? Okay, and another writer named Tom Schiller, um, wrote a sketch called um, Samurai Hotel, okay? <laughs> okay? And it worked. And a couple of shows later, Buck Henry was coming in to host. And I idolized Buck Henry, he was a graduate and uh, Get Smart. And just as a persona, I just idolized him. Lorne came up to me and he said, um, you worked in a deli before you got this job, right? I went, yeah. He said, you think you can write Samurai Deli? I went, piece of cake. He leaves. I'm going, what the hell am I going to What the fuck? Does, what does that mean? All right. And I wrote it, and I wrote the next 10 or 11 of them. But there was a character. And, um, and, and Schiller made it come to life in Samurai Hotel. Uh, Gilda, there was a character called Roseanne, Roseanne Dana. Classic. Um, well, what had happened was this really funny writer named Rosie Schuster wrote a public service announcement uh, called uh, Hire the Incompetent, okay? <laughs> where she had three vignettes of these people who were total screw-ups, and we were supposed to hire them despite the fact, and Gilda, for her vignette, put on a wig and had a dialect and was talking about how she got uh, fired from a Burger King kind of place, and she sang it while she's just like doing, <laughs> taking her, rubbing her armpits, because they said they found a hair or something. <laughs> So I was having dinner with Gilda a couple of months later, and I said, listen, remember that character? Why don't we, you know, I'm producing Weekend Update at the point, at that time. I said, let's move her into Update and give her a name and let her do consumer reports. You know, and she got a letter every week from a guy named Richard Fader from Fort Lee, New Jersey. It's my brother-in-law, okay? <laughs> okay? So all of a sudden, it became a thing. Rosie doesn't write that. I, I, I don't. I, I can't come up with that. I didn't come up with that. But it, you know, the character I saw when we gave it a name, we gave it a life, a different life. But when you have really funny people around you, whether they're writers or actors, all those actors you mentioned, they may not have been disciplined writers where they sat at a typewriter in the, until 2 in the morning writing a sketch. But if Gilda comes into my office and says, Can I, I, I want to play Debbie Doody, Howdy Doody's wife, I go, all right, let's do it, you know? So they were writers, not disciplined, right. but they improv actors. And I remember any time that I'd write something for Belushi, he'd look at it and he goes, 
all right, I'm going to go out there and save your ass again. (laughs) (laughs) He used to piss on everything that I wrote. So it is easier. It's um, Marilyn Miller, who was one of the writers, was, hey, kids, let's put on a show. And that's exactly what it was. Lorne had created an atmosphere where uh, he, the only rule that we had, he said, let's make each other laugh. Yeah. And if we do that, we'll put it on television. And he assured us that there was this baby boomer generation that had our sense of humor, listened to our music. It was like Woodstock, just a couple of years after Woodstock was 69, this was right. 75. Uh, Watergate was a year before, it was 74. Incredible. So you think about the changes that were going on, and he, he said, that's the audience that we're playing to, us. Yeah. And um, my God, it's 47, 48 years later. I'll tell you how indelible it is. As soon as you said Rosanna Dana, Rosanna, Rosanna Dana, right? Right. I still, re- it's been this many years ago. As soon as you said that, I thought of her sitting there going, What's this about too many violins on TV? Well, see, that was Emily Latella. Oh, was that Emily Latella? Emily Latella. I remember the joke about the violins, the violins on, on, on TV. Latella. She. Emily Latella was, once again, it was uh, a bunch of writers. I didn't name her Emily Latella. Uh, I think Tom Davis did, uh, who was half of the writing team of Al Franken and Tom Davis. Right. The, the character, the little old lady, was based on a nanny that Gilda had oh. growing up. The nanny's name was Dibby, and she was hard of hearing. Right. Okay? So um, she wanted to come on Weekend Update and do editorial replies that she misheard. That's it. Okay, so violins on television, and I started uh, writing for, uh, you know, there was um, making Puerto Rico a steak instead of a state, (laughs) Uh, presidential erections, you know. (laughs) I think the lowest we got before we put the skids on it was uh, endangered feces, okay? (laughs) And so she would be corrected and then go, never mind, you know? what was really funny was, I think it was the endangered feces thing. Everybody was saying, okay, it's enough already because people were writing in and, and, and giving suggestions. And many times they were better than ours, you know? And, uh, but I wanted to give it a little, little bit longer of a shelf life. So Jane Curtin is now the uh, anchor person on Weekend Update and Gilda comes in and let's say it was endangered feces. Then she's corrected and then she says, never mind. And at this point, it's like sort of like a little titter in, in the audience. And at dress rehearsal, which is done in full, front of a full audience, I elongated it. I had Jane Curtin say to her, listen, you come on this show every week. You get the subject wrong. You make a fool of yourself. You undermine our journalistic integrity. He says, I don't want to ever see you again. Am I making myself clear? I had Gilda say, crystal clear. And then she took a beat, and under her breath, she went, bitch. Now, this is 1977, so between, and I got a huge laugh, but between dress and air, we had a censor named Jane Crowley, who was about as big as this room, okay, and dress shields, (laughs) ex-nun, you know who I'm talking about. So she comes waddling out, and she says, "Uh, Alan, we can't do this when we go on the air. We can't do what? She says, you can't say bitch. I said, Jane. I really wanted to get bitch on television. I said, Jane, please listen to me. When Gilda says bitch, she's using the adverb form of word. 
in effect, she's saying, <laughs> Jane, you are acting bitchy toward me. Adverb. I said, she's not saying, Jane, you are a bitch, which is a noun, and I agree she'd never be on television. <laughs> this is an adverb. And she said, let me think about it. <laughs> she goes into the control room, picks up a phone, calls God, I guess, and comes waddling out, and she says, Alan, because it's an adverb, um, you can say bitch. And that's how bitch got on television. I know that Lauren got involved somehow, too, in some meeting that I wasn't a part of. But, um, yeah, but once again, you're inspired by these people, have ideas of their own, and they present you with characters, or it's the... Uh, you know, it's the synergy of two people. I've always felt like, I felt this when I wrote with Gary Shanling when we created a show for him that we were about, and this, these are arbitrary numbers, 80% the same, which is what right. attracted us to each other. But you know that. I mean, the other 20%, you each bring something that the other person could not have thought of. Absolutely. Okay. So the product is, yeah, that's the collaboration. It's something I couldn't do by myself, you know? And that's what's fun. You have collaborated with Billy Crystal, Dave Barry, Gary Shandling, and many, many more. Sure. What you were explaining, that you're 80% the same, and you each bring your 20% of your uniqueness to the collaboration. Talk about the process. Do you just spitball? Does one write a draft? Do you exchange pages? Or do you just start spitballing in the room with a writer's assistant? How do you collaborate with these people? Well, individually, <clears throat> I mean, I can go one by one. It, look, it's easiest... <clears throat> if you're in the room with somebody and because you come up with something that's based on or built from something that the other person says in the moment. Right. Okay. So that's easy. It's like, <clears throat> excuse me, it's like being at a party. It's like, it's, it be, it's a social thing. All right. But it's work, but it's fun. And if you don't have an ego about it, um, you'll, you'll both know when, okay, that's it. Okay. Right. Whether it's said individually or it's done collaboratively, which is one person building on the other, creating this other thing. Um, but I've written books with Dave Barry, who lives in books. He lives in Coral Gables, Florida. I live in New Jersey. And we wrote a book that we just wrote the screenplay for. We're handing it in tonight or tomorrow. And um, it was called Lunatics. And I said to him, "Let's." we, we met each other, and uh, we liked each other, and we saw each other on book tour. And I said, let's write something together. And I said, well, why don't we do a novel? He said, well, how are we going to do that? How, how do you do it anyway? Right. All right. So I came up with something. I, his daughter, Sophie, was uh, playing uh, in a soccer league. She was like 11 or 12 at the time. I said, why don't we do this? Here's the situation. There's a girls' championship soccer team, right? And um, one girl kicks what looks like the winning goal to win the championship. The ref calls her off sides. So there's a local feud between the girl's father, a soccer dad, and the ref. And it starts off as a local feud. Let's see where, let's follow it. Who knows, maybe there'll be a new pope as a result <laughs> of this feud. So we wrote this book, and Dave Barry, because he um, is a Pulitzer Prize winning humorist, and he appeared... God knows how many newspapers when he was syndicated, he churns it out really quickly. Oh. Okay, so I sent him a chapter, and each chapter was about four or five pages long. You didn't want to get involved too much into one person's thing until they got together, and then right. 
So I sent him four or five pages, and my character was very demure, very, very straight-laced, good citizen, politically, totally politically correct. This was 10 years ago. Uh-huh. I send it to Dave. He sends me, so what takes me four or five days to write? A day later, later that night, all of a sudden, in my inbox are these pages, and he comes up with the most vile, bawdy <laughs> character in the world, which the girl's father, and uh-huh. I was the ref. So now it's like I'm reacting to him, I send it to him, he reacts to me, and we follow the story. So in that particular case, we would still be writing it if the editor didn't say, you know, guys, you gotta hand it in on the 15th, so <laughs> we gotta end this thing. But, you know, and it worked great, And uh, except Dave tells this story, he said it was working great, and we, we didn't bother editing each other, it was unbridled, the only time that he called me was, he said, Alan, I, I really like your last chapter, but I, I'm at a loss here. I go, why? He says, well, at the end of the chapter, you killed off everyone in the book. <laughs> I don't know who to write for. I go, oh, you mean they wouldn't survive jumping from the top of an ocean liner into, no, Alan, they would, okay, fine. So I, I, I tweaked it, okay, so he can continue writing. But there was a case where, Two people, once again, similar sensibilities, but different enough where I could not have written his character and vice versa. Martin Short, uh, when I uh, collaborated with him on his Broadway show, he, um, the most, you know, these characters, I could never have thought of Jiminy Glick. I could, you know, or any of his characters. So there, once again, if you train your ear, you can contribute. You, you can help. I remember when I first got out of college and um, what I did as an exercise, because all those guys in the Catskills all were the same person, I would sit down and I'd go, okay, uh, this week the subject is uh, buying a house. Monday I would write a monologue uh, as if Jack Benny was buying a house. Tuesday as if Joan Rivers was buying a house. Wednesday, uh, Flip Wilson or Cosby or, or at the time or whatever, David Steinberg. By the end of the week, I'd have five monologues about the same subject, but with diff- I was training my ear to capture different voices. So if I meet a guy like Gary Shandling, right, or if I meet a guy like Dave Barry, and I go, all right, I know their voice. Well, not, Dave isn't a good example of that because he's a pure writer. It's not like I'm writing for him to perform. Right. Okay. <clears throat> but if you can capture the per- person's voice, like Billy Crystal, okay, this will be, I think this will be funny coming out of his mouth. And it's, um, and once again, it's, and I learned this with Shandling, a little bit at SNL, but with Shandling, uh, one of the, we, we had a, a, a couple of squabbles because I felt that this was the right joke. And he didn't want, if he didn't want to do it, he wouldn't say it with conviction, okay? So then you have this talk. You go, all right, listen, the reason I gave you that joke, here was the intent. The intention was, this, and in that point in the script, we need you to say something like that. If you don't like these exact words, well, think of another joke. But if you agree with me that this is what the story needs, this is what the character has to express at this point, then we'll write something different. And then then, then you have a different conversation. Right. Oh, I see what you meant by that. 
I don't want to say it that way, but what if I say it this way? So you tailor a new joke to fit that situation. Well, <clears throat> your new book, the subtitle, if I've got it correct, is uh, helping you help funny people be funnier. Well, my life helping funny people. My be life fun helping funny people be funnier. Yeah. And you just explained how you do that, and it's it, you really do have a remarkable ear, like Billy Crystal or Gary, that you can pick up on the cadence. I find that remarkable. Those monologues that you said, writing for different people, and I think playwrights should hear this. People that write for television should hear this so that you don't just get locked into one voice. The fact, and especially in TV, where you're writing for multiple characters. You don't want everybody to sound the same. You, you want, you, you want uh, people to have distinct personalities and distinct point of views. You know, and I think of some of the classic TV shows, you know, lore has it, and I, I, I think it's true, but um, it could be urban legend that the longest sustained laugh in the history of radio came out of silence. Jack Benny. Jack Benny. I know the story, but please tell it. Well, it, Jack <clears throat> Benny was known as the cheap guy. He yes. was really stingy. And in radio, he's walking along. A bad guy comes, sticks a gun in his back, and he says, your money or your life. And the longer he didn't answer... The louder and louder the laughter became from the, the radio, yes. the studio audience was because they knew that he was mulling it over, okay? And then when the laugh started to dip a little bit, they had the bad guy say, well, and then Jack Green said, I'm thinking about it, okay? <laughs> and it shot up again. So to create a character, like if you looked at All in the Family, it was Archie Bunker was coming up the steps of his house, and we, the audience, saw that Jefferson, the African-American, was sitting in his chair. We left in anticipation right. of what Archie would say once he opened the door and saw that. Right. Well, that's character writing. That's great character writing. And you don't even, if it came out of silence, and if it came out of silence with the other example I gave, how ingrained are those characters in our brains that uh, they didn't have to say anything? And it's just like anything else. Nobody speaks in jokes. Okay, right. You, right. we all have friends who are funny, and you, know, you always say, "Oh, you had just imagine him saying that, or you had to be there, or, or whatever it is." It's it's um it's character. Yeah, and uh, I, I I define this for my students with worldview. I go, "What is your character's worldview?" And Jack, and it can be going back, all the way back to Commedia, it can be the Lazzi. They're shtick. Yes. They're cheap. They're the hot one, Capitano, the braggart who yes. is actually uh, a coward. But you find that worldview or that Lotsey or that thing that is that character. And I use Mary Tyler Moore as an example because those characters were so well-defined. Oh, yeah. And I don't think I'm making this up because I, uh, I use it as an example where Mary was taking a bubble bath and Ted walked in the room and he said something and his car keys fell into the bathtub. <laughs> and the same thing as Jack Benny. There was no... All you have to do is look. You don't have to say anything. And because the audience knew the character so well. And to me, that's great comedy when the comedy comes out of character. Absolutely. You know, my wife and I were in LA a couple of weeks ago, and we passed the uh, Beverly Hills Police Department. And, uh, and we used to live there for 16, 17 years. So, you know, but it was nostalgic. We're driving around. And I said, boy, you know what comes to mind with the Beverly Hills Police Department? Do you remember the episode on Jack Benny? 
he went down to the police department, the Beverly Hills one, and the police dogs in Beverly Hills were these big standard poodles that had all these quaffs <laughs> and stuff like that. And, and just watching Jack Benny react <laughs> to the dogs was hilarious. Not to say that nobody else would let, but it was something, the coupling of his reaction to it, you know? I'm going to ask you, since you brought her up, uh, I, I'm not going to pry into your private life. Go ahead. But Robin, you've been married since 1979. Mm-hmm. Someone in show business that's been married that long with three kids and five grandchildren. Is it still five? It's still five. Yeah. It's still five. How did you do it? What is the secret? I mean, really, that, and I'm not being flip here. Well, you think of people that work, I, I've only been married 36 years, but... Uh, People in show business maintaining a marriage that long. What what was your secret? I think what was very helpful was the fact that Robin worked on SNL. That's where we met. Oh, I she, okay. She was a production assistant, so um, uh, so she saw firsthand, sort of what she would be getting herself into. But what I did was also. This was, so let's say this was 78-ish before we got married, when we were dating. Uh, Neil Simon had a play that was going to be opening on Broadway this particular week. So he wrote a piece for the Sunday New York Times Arts and Leisure section. Okay, And I think it later became a preface of one of his anthologies. And in it, he described the comedy writer as a two-headed monster. One head goes through life, you know, you go to the ATM, you go to the dentist, you get stuck in traffic. But then another head, without announcement or provocation, emerges, hovers over the first head, and starts making fun of the life that this guy is living. Yes. And I said yes. to her, I said, please read this, because I think <laughs> this is what you'll be getting yourself into. And look, 44 years... Um, you know, the kids have senses of humor, the grandkids do. I'm not saying it's been every day, it's been a day at the of beach, course. you know. No. But, but there's um, a component there which is based on, look, I'll tell you very briefly how we met. I mean, uh, this was pre-production, the third year of SNL. And so we kept civil hours. She first got the job there as the, uh, the show secretary. But to get the job... She lied about her typing skills, right? <laughs> okay. So now everybody's going home. It's 6 o'clock. I'm packing up. And my office was right near the reception area uh, outside that was outside of Lorne Michaels' office. And as I'm getting ready to leave from the reception area, remember the typewriters, uh, the, IB, the Selectrics that had that ball thing, and it just it made a loud... Absolutely. I hear a... And then five seconds later, I hear another... And then seven, another go, what the hell is that? And I go in and I see that she's looking, oh, there's the seven, you know, oh, oh, oh yeah, an M, okay? And I'm going, <laughs> wow. All right, so I sit down, the, the desk were facing each other, just the way you and I are right now. Right, right. And I see her, her head is down, and she's really, literally hunting and pecking. And I thought she was, you know, I don't know if you're allowed to say this anymore, but she was really pretty. <laughs> I'll handle that mail. The, um, and I wanted to get her attention. Nobody's around, and the door to Lauren's office is open, but no one's around. And uh, I clear my throat. She doesn't look up. I open up the drawer of the whosever desk I was sitting at, 
and there's a box of paper clips. I take a paper clip and I throw it and it hits her typewriter and she doesn't look up. <laughs> she just continues the task. Then I throw another one, hits her shoulder, okay? She doesn't look up. Finally, I'm getting pissed. I take the whole box, I mean, it'd be like 100 clips. I throw it and 100 clips come raining down on her head. She never looks at me. She stops typing, she stands, walks around the desk, goes into Lauren's office, comes out wearing a pith helmet that he had hanging on a hat, on a coat rack, and she sits down, and it was one of those pith helmets that you push a button, and the, the red thing at the top goes, bee-boo, bee-boo, bee. and she puts it, and now she never looked at me once, and I go, okay, boy, now it's just a matter of how long can I put off making a commitment here yeah, because I knew that. Yeah. So, it, it, the, 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 you know, and I'm sure, I mean, if you're married as long as you are also, you know, that um, what attracted you to each other? What, what are you like at your best? You know, and, and if it's based on funny. Yeah. Boy, what a what Funny a has a lot to do with it. It sure does. You <clears throat> when know. I was writing Home Improvement and uh, it got to the point where there was one taping where you talked about the two heads where you yeah. watch Angelina's sitting there and I went oh shit I leaned over and I said some of this may sound familiar oh god <laughs> and almost every argument we had for three years ended up on home improvement in some version or another sure because even in the midst of this passionate argument and why did you do this and how could you say <laughs> that there's that part of your brain that other head going ooh that's funny that could be that it's could taking be. the it's taking it down and yeah. it's taking it down and that that is so r correct, what you described. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I hearken back to when we first started. I'm, Larry David is still my, my, my close pal. But when we were all starting out, and let's say we were hanging out at the improv, we would go out, uh, let's say, for coffee or something after, okay, one in the morning or something like that. So we'd be in a coffee shop, and it would be me and Larry David, um, you know, and two other comics who were maybe Richard Lewis right. who were around at the time. There was a guy named Bob Shaw. And we'd be talking. Now, if something big happened, like somebody dropped something, all of us would take out our little pads, write it down, and put it back in our pocket, you know, to make note right. of, of something that happened. But Larry, we would be talking about something, and all of a sudden, he would take out his little notebook and write something, and we're all going, what happened? What did we miss? Okay. <laughs> So he, he was like on a different plane than everybody. He, yeah. he was like, uh, and to this day, to this day, I mean, with all his success, and um, there are some people who think differently than right. other people, and you just sit back and you go, wow. Yeah, it's it's. Made, I'm going to talk about glimpses because uh, the that's the name of this podcast. Well, that's why you're watching and listening. Uh, and the name of the book is Glimpses, a writer's take on life, love, and all that spiritual stuff. And it's a great title. And a the book in, encourages us to find little glimpses of God in your daily life. And by God, I'm not talking about the guy in the burning bush, you know? I, I, I really believe that's either George Burns or George Carlin. I'm not sure. It's some George. <laughs> it's yeah, some yeah. George. Uh -huh. But uh, by glimpses of God, I mean moments of grace, unexpected kindness, tenderness. And I, I realized, Alan, that we were getting so cynical in and around COVID and all the stuff happening in Washington and everything. And people were saying, we're doomed, we're doomed, life's a shitstorm, it's all over. And I said, I don't believe that, because if you look around, if you really look, you find little glimpses of God everywhere. 
And do you see those moments of tenderness and kindness in your life? And, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and what happened, I think, um, for all of us, whether we're conscious of it or not, is during COVID, um, when we were all living the same lives and people were dying, and now, now it's post-COVID, but every week somebody our age is dying. Right. Uh, Richard Lewis went public the other day that he's got Parkinson's, okay? Right. He, and I think that what's happened is, um, and now that we're in our 70s, right? I think time has become more precious. Who am I going to spend time with? How am I going to spend my time? Right. Because it doesn't last forever. And I do think that um, the people and the things that we love, we embrace more, we appreciate more. And as far as finding those glimpses that you're talking about, my friend Billy Crystal calls it God winking. Okay, yes. those little, little things that, wait a second, that number was from here, but it's appearing over here, or a song that reminds you of somebody, I was just thinking of them, and all of a sudden, the next song on the radio is one that you right. made out to, okay, right. uh, or, or, or whatever it is, and I do, I I personally believe that um, I go through my life thinking that uh, we're not born, and we're, we're given these bodies, right. and... Uh, and then the bodies eventually betray us. They break down. They don't work anymore. And we either go back to wherever we were before we were born. I don't know. Nobody's come back to tell us. But at the same time, I, I do believe that um, whatever is in your heart stays in your heart. And I think we have to listen to it. I couldn't say that any better. And with that, I think we'll wrap it up. Well, I've had a great time. I, I, I loved using your bathroom, and um, <laughs> I, I don't think you're paying uh, Matthew enough, by okay. the way. These, uh, he showed me where it was, and okay. he, he gave me an option, too. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Alan <laughs> Zweibel, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Matt. And for all of you, thank you for joining us on this podcast. And as you go about your day, uh, I encourage you to take the time to look around and catch a glimpse. Thanks. <laughs>